From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy, serving up Jewish food stories the only way you can really enjoy them, with a volume button. Today on Schmaltzy, Nancy Spielberg. Nancy is a documentary and feature film producer. Recently, she helped found Jewish Story Partners, a fund for filmmakers telling the Jewish story. In addition, Nancy continues to honor her parents' memory by helping to manage the Milky Way restaurant, the family's kosher Los Angeles eatery, which was founded by her mother, Leah Adler. Earlier this year, Nancy took the stage at Schmaltzy Los Angeles. In this episode, we'll hear Nancy's story and our conversation in the studio. Here's Nancy. On my first date with my now husband, I mentioned to him that I'd never tasted lox, and he was stunned. I mean, how does a 21-year-old Jew go through life without tasting lox? And he actually questioned my Jewish roots. He said, are you sure you're Jewish? Is your mother Jewish? I, my mom, Lee, of course she was Jewish, but she was definitely not the typical Jewish mom. I mean, my mother's famous, famous advice to her children was that guilt is a wasted emotion. Jewish mothers don't teach their children not to feel guilty. And me, of course, I'm a Jew, but what he didn't understand is that I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. So in other words, I was a redneck Jew. Still wearing the cowboy boots. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for joining us Thank today. Thank you, Amanda. I'm happy to be here. In your story, you talk about the fact that you were 21 years old and you never tasted locks before. <laughs> and herring, by the way, but I left that out of the story. <laughs> so how did you get to be of this age and never tasted locks? Well, I did not grow up with any real sense of Jewish community. And none of my friends were Jewish. And locks just never came my way. And what I did know of lux and pickled herring from the couple of times that my parents would drag me to this little synagogue in Phoenix, a little steeple, like, you know, <laughs> with a lot of elderly people. And so they would have Kiddush. But I didn't know what any of this meant. All I knew is that everybody had really bad breath after the pickled herring. And it turned me off for my entire life that I would never touch a jar of that. So it's not something you enjoy today? I love it today. Okay. So it's, it's funny because the first time I tasted lox, I was pregnant with my first daughter. So that was 32 years ago. And I was in London. My brother was filming one of the Indiana Jones films, and we were there. And I was in the hotel, and I suddenly have this craving for, of all things, lox, which they called smoked salmon because it was one of those upscale hotels. And I remember the room service guy came with a little platter with three little triangles of toast with salmon. And before my husband finished signing the bill, I said, can I have another order? So that was like, and I like started to inhale it. <laughs> so when I started, I started big. I'll say. <laughs> You mentioned your mom, Leah, who I know is a big part of your life and your family's life, and where you said she was not your typical Jewish mom. <laughs> she was not at all a typical anything, definitely not a typical Jewish mom. What was your idea of what a typical Jewish mom was or is? A typical Jewish mom 
knows how to sew a button onto your shirt. And make sure you eat a lot and you finish what's on your plate. And if you have a boo-boo, they take care of it right away instead of, say, rub some dirt in it. And they have a certain sense of nurturing, almost suffocating. And my mother was free spirit, climb a tree, let's go fishing, let's go camping, uh, you know, not at all. Don't eat that because you're chubby. <laughs> I mean, one Jewish mother takes food out of her child's mouth. My mother used to take food out of my mouth because I would say, don't let me eat that. So she wouldn't let me eat that. And we never had enough food in our house. And it wasn't because we were poor. It's just that she figured one little chicken is enough for a family of four. But that meant somebody maybe got a wing. And if there were leftovers... My mother threw them in the garbage. Jewish mothers do not throw leftovers away. They keep them for like a month or so. At least. Until they grow something. I know. She was also one of the kids. She was not a disciplinarian. She let us get away with everything. And my dad was much more of a disciplinarian. My mother, if there was a punishment, there could be a hand that would just go fly to hit you on the butt. But that was it. It was done. She would probably cry instead of punish us. So we grew up with like a real free spirit and also somebody that had much more of a regiment, an idea of how to raise your children properly. Hmm. Do you think this concept of like a typical Jewish mom has received an update, like a 2022 update? I think, yes, I think that the typical Jewish mom has changed, has had to change because we're different. Their kids are different. They're faced with so many different challenges that before were immediately pushed aside. Dating outside of the faith, um, your sexuality. These weren't really issues that were tackled by our parents. You know, my mother-in-law, who was much more of a typical Jewish mom, kept taking my first baby and putting things in her right hand so she wouldn't be a lefty because you're not allowed to be a lefty, and I'm a lefty. And so that kind of mentality in child-rearing doesn't exist anymore. You have to talk to your kids. You have to reason with your children. You have to give them, you know, listen to them, validate them. Nobody validated us as kids. They just said, this is the way it is. My family moved out to Phoenix in 1957. I was a baby. And Phoenix was a desert, literally, figuratively, no water, no Jews. And we didn't really have a very strong Jewish identity. You know, we knew we were Jewish mainly because the neighbors had their chant. They used to come out and say, the Spielbergs are dirty Jews, the Spielbergs are dirty Jews. And then they would steal our toys. And of course, Christmas time, we all feel this when your house is the only dark house on the block and every other house is adorned in Christmas lights. And as a little kid, you know, I didn't understand why are we such outsiders? I mean, we weren't, we weren't obvious Jews. We weren't observant. Well, we were observant five times a year, you know, those kind of Jews. So it was the biggies. It was Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur and Hanukkah and Passover and something else with food. We were gastronomical Jews, but all Jews are gastronomical Jews, so that didn't count. And aside from Passover, we were trafed 357 days a year. In fact, I remember uh, one time 
the rabbi surprised us with a visit to our home. And my mother was in the kitchen looking out the kitchen window when he pulled into the driveway. And she was holding a live lobster that she was just about to drop <laughs> into a pot of boiling water. So she panicked and ran down the hall with the lobster and threw it at my brother Steve and said, hide this. So Steve threw the lobster under his bed along with the balled up dirty socks and other filth that collected there. But this plan wasn't a really good one because the rabbi came to talk to Steve about his Torah portion for his bar mitzvah and headed right into Steve's room. And the entire time that Steve and the rabbi were talking about the Torah portion, the lobster was trying to escape from under the bed. And Steve kept kicking it back under the mattress. I don't really think Rabbi Greenberg noticed. So we didn't fit in with the non-Jews, and we sort of didn't fit in with the Jews because, you know, we did weird things like hide lobsters under the bed. Were there other ways that you felt like maybe you didn't have the typical Jewish experience? Well, definitely didn't have the typical Jewish experience. There was really hardly a Jewish experience to be had. Um, we were on the outs in almost every single way. It wasn't that there was just a few areas that were missing. Everything was geared around more of a Christian upbringing. So, you know, when you're in school and in second grade, the teacher, everybody's making Christmas decorations and they give you a piece of blue paper and say, cut out whatever you want, like a Jewish star. So you did get like your corner of the window, but everything was about Christmas and about Easter. And Christmas, you know, all the houses were lit up. And that was a, a huge activity. Get in the car at night, drive through the neighborhoods and see all the houses that were, you know, adorned with Christmas lights and, and mechanical Santas and reindeers. And I was so jealous because our house was the dark house. You know, we, that's, I think, when I really felt other. Yeah, I think that that is a story that many people can relate to that, you know, didn't grow up in a densely populated Jewish area. Right, right. And Christmas is cool. You know, I mean, what, who doesn't want Christmas? So forget about the fact that your parents tried to say, but it's Hanukkah and you get eight nights and, you know, so just give me all the presents on one big night. <laughs> and my sister, Anne, was born on Christmas. So imagine being a Jewish kid growing up in a non-Jewish neighborhood where you could not have a birthday party ever on your birthday because every friend of yours was busy opening their Christmas presents with their families. So she grew up always feeling that she got shortchanged. But when I was 10, everything changed. Uh, more Jews had moved to Phoenix and a Jewish day school started and I had the opportunity to go. My sisters Sue and I were the two youngest and I was thrilled I thought, finally, I'm going to go to this school where maybe these kids will understand me. Maybe they will be like me and I will have a place to belong. But little did I know what was waiting for me because this was an Orthodox day school. So I walked into school my first day. I didn't realize how little I knew about being Jewish. I, I didn't know the customs, the rules, the, the prayers, all of it in a foreign language called Hebrew, I was really over my head. But lunchtime, I always excelled at lunch in school. That was always a good thing. 
So lunchtime they said, go wash up, which is good hygiene after being on a playground. And after we washed, it was very quiet in the room. And I hate silences. They make me very uncomfortable. So I started talking to the little girl next to me. And she looked at me with these wide eyes. And then all the other kids were looking at me wide-eyed. And then the teacher was glaring at me. And I thought, what have I done wrong already? What I didn't know is that there is a process of washing your hands, saying a prayer, and then not talking until you break bread. But nobody told me that. My first day of school, and I couldn't even get lunch right. So I was intimidated. I was really intimidated by my own religion. And I thought, I don't fit in here either. Like, where am I going to fit in? But yes, of course, slowly I learned, I caught on, I studied Torah, I learned about Israel, I learned Hebrew, I learned about kosher, I bonded with these kids. I mean, these are kids that, like me, had been ridiculed and excluded just for being Jewish in Phoenix, Arizona. And I went to playdates at their house, and I spent Shabbos at their house. I learned not to talk between washing hands and breaking bread. I, like, had this down. I was a Jew, and I belonged except for one little thing. When I invited these kids to my house, they said they couldn't come because our house was, was trafe. In fact, their mothers would say, the Spielbergs are trafe, which I think was better than the Spielbergs are dirty Jews. I was moving up the ladder in a sense. So at 10 years old, I made an executive decision. We needed to make the house kosher. So my sister and I decided to sit our mom down and tell her, Mom, we got to make the house kosher or we won't have a social life. And as I mentioned, my mom was a different kind of mom. She was very adventurous, but this is a big deal. Asking someone to make a house kosher means go throw away your nice dishes and pots and pans and now go buy new ones and double of everything, plus dietary restrictions. No more cheeseburgers and no more lobster. Not in the house, at least. So, I mean, what parent does this? What parent will go to those lengths just for their children's social life? My mom. My mom said, great idea. That was so my mom. I mean, my mother was a rare bird. She was our Peter Pan. She was an adventurous soul. She climbed trees. She went fishing. She, she chased fire trucks with us in the back of the car just for fun. <laughs> And she let my brother turn the whole house into a movie studio when he was a teenager, including you know, throwing cans of cherry pie filling all over her white cabinets for the perfect shot. My mom was the kind of parent that listened to her daughters when they said that they wanted their friends to be able to come over. Do you think that your children experienced feeling like an outsider in the same way that you did, or they grew up in a different world and a different environment, and, and that wasn't their experience? They did not grow up feeling like outsiders out of their Judaism, for sure, because we made sure that they would grow up with a strong sense of Jewish community because I didn't. My husband's a rabbi's son. He only grew up with Jewish community. And so for him, that was just the natural course. And for me, it was something that I definitely wanted my kids to grow up with. So to them, it just, from the early days of gun, you know, till the last day of college, and then my daughter ended up in Israel. 
And Melissa, the one in L.A., moved into a Moishi house, which is a federation program. So she stayed involved in, in Jewish community. And I think that's, that's perfect. How do you think about what your mom and stepdad did for you and your family and turning your house kosher and going along with all of that work and change, like, for you, essentially? I think they were so thrilled that it came from us because it wasn't anything being pushed on us. And it's hard to push belief or tradition onto anybody. You know, we try. Generations before have tried, and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. But when your kids come to you with the desire, I'm sure it woke in them their childhoods and how they grew up. So I think that is why they really uh, embraced it. Have your children ever posed to you anything as extreme as making the house kosher or doing other, you know, crazy things that they wanted you to do? Uh, let's see. My daughter wanted me to get high with her. <laughs> okay. No, I know that doesn't sound like a weird thing, but when you can think about that, I, you know, we grew up in this age where if you had a joint on you, you would go to prison. And then suddenly your kid says like, you know, mom, I really went, and this is actually before pot was legal, legal. She was in college and she said, I don't want to do anything illegal. So can the family go on a vacation to Amsterdam so we can all get high and try it there? Because it'll be legal. And I was like, no, I don't think that's called a family vacation. Uh, but no, really, my kids have not forced anything on me. I think that going kosher was extreme because it was an extreme change in our family pattern. My kids have not done that. I think for the most part, they like the pattern that they grew up with. As a community, do you think we've grown more or less inclusive towards the diversity of Jewish identity? I think we've grown more inclusive and we still have a long way to go. And it's hard. It's really tough because there's, because of the really, really um, strict traditions and the way that we have been brought up, it's, it's hard for a lot of people. It's hard to bend. It is hard to bend, but the way the world is going, that we need to find a way not to become so disconnected. And I think younger generations are leaving their Judaism aside or their Jewish identity because it, it costs so much for them and it doesn't quite fit into the other pieces of their life. And then those in college are having problems because if they are pro-Israel, they're attacked. If they are Jewish, they're attacked even if they're not pro-Israel. There's a rise in anti-Semitism. And there are those that will battle and there are those that will just stay a little quiet because it's hard. Well, I have to ask, I mean, do you think that, that food is an important way that people can connect with their Judaism? Oh, yes. <laughs> because I, I think I said what Jew is not uh, you know, gastronomically Jewish. That's how we started. Somebody posted on one of the social medias of like, what's a great Jewish food name for your dog? And I mean, everybody was into it. So what does that tell you? That people connect gastronomically more so than they do almost any other way. And I thought, oh my God, every dog from now on, I'm going to name after a Jewish food. <laughs> We talked so much about your mom, and I'm just very curious, did having such, you know, a creative mom influence your career? 
Like, how did did she give you kind of the leeway to choose, you know, something that was creative? Yes, my mom was very creative. She was a concert pianist and she was a painter. So she did besides, you know, climbing trees and fishing. Yeah. And four children? Yeah. Where did she find the well, time? Well, she didn't take care of us well, but no, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> No, it used to be like, you know, we used to laugh and say, the minute we would start fighting, she would say, bye, and she'd leave. But, uh, and you know, my mom, we grew up barefoot, always. And we never had furniture. We never had a couch until I was 15 years old. So we always sat on the floor. And every family picture, we're on the floor. And it's interesting because my my brother's just finishing a film that's sort of based on his and our childhood. And when they made the set, our living room, there's no couch. It's really weird because they really copied our house. So my mom basically let us thrive in whatever way we felt ourselves pulled. And my brother wanted to make films and started making films when he was a Boy Scout because he couldn't do some of the tasks that were needed to get different uh, medals. Mm. So he went to his... Oh, the badges. His badges, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay. he went to his scoutmaster once and said, listen, I can't do chin-ups. Can I make a film instead and get that same badge? And the scoutmaster said yes. And he had the whole troop in it. And then my brother started making westerns and, and war films. And our family car... One of them was a 1950 Willys Army Jeep from the Korean War. It had no top. It had no doors. It had no roll bars, no seat belts. And we went to school in that. So when my brother would be making these Army films, he was too young to drive. So my mother, who had super short hair, would put on an Army helmet and an Army uniform, and she would be driving the Jeep and the films. And whatever Steve needed, she allowed him to do so he turned the whole house into a movie set and she was right there she was always in the middle of the action and my dad was also my dad was very technical so the camera work the camera lenses so I think they really allowed us to try everything like you know yes we had to take piano lessons and I said I don't want to my mom said okay how many parents do that usually they say I'm sorry go practice I never got past Jack and Jill on the piano. So that was it for me. <laughs> and they just let us be. They let us flourish in whatever way that we felt ourselves pulled. And that takes a lot of control of, of self-discipline for a parent not. You know, we always say the parents write the children's scripts. The children just don't want to always read their lines. So my mother, she didn't force us. It sounds like a lot of fun. It was. You know, my mother bought us a monkey. As a pet, <laughs> who does that? Who does that? I know. Who has a monkey? And, and you know, we fell in love with it. It was like the olden days in, we lived in Northern California for a little while. It was called Yellow Front. It was like a giant Kmart and it had a little pet department. And there was a little sad monkey in a cage. And my parents, we'd you know, family goes to like the Walmart for fun. And we would go to the pet department and the, just pet the monkey and fell in love with him. And my mother brought him home. Wow. Do you think that when your house became kosher at your urging, do you think that that brought more structure to your family life in a way? It definitely did because suddenly we had Shabbat dinners and that was wonderful. And we also spent a lot of time going to the neighborhood where our synagogue school was and we had new friends. So we would stay in hotels or we'd stay at people's houses, the whole family. 
And so I grew up suddenly like I had a whole Shabbos experience. Suddenly we're with our friends and we have Friday night dinners and then we had shul and then we had Shabbos lunches. And so all that was like a real great experience. So it seems like your mom was kind of, as you said, more of like the free spirit. And then your your stepdad kind of was the more, you just said, technical. And, and my, well, my dad. Your first, dad. First okay. my dad first and then dad. my stepfather okay. because they actually used to work together. They're both computer engineers. So they both had that mentality of, um, of sort of yeah. things lining up. Yeah. And do you feel like you brought both of their personalities or experiences like to your own family, to raising your own children? I think I did. It's funny because my my dad was very Jewish, not at all religious, and I and very into science fiction and science. And he was one of the very early developers of computers and computer chips. And that's why we moved out to Arizona because he was going uh-huh. up and up and up in the computer world. And my stepfather worked with my dad. I see. That's a whole nother story. So they were both being computer engineers had like brains. And but my dad knew all the blessings and he taught us the Shema. So that was a very early memory. There's a poem, We Willy Winky. So I thought the Shema and the We Willy Winky were one thing because we would say one into the other. So we would do, you know, we willy winky runs through the town, blah, 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 and then go Shema Yisrael. So as a kid, I thought that was just a whole thing together. So my dad, he loved the tradition, very traditional. And my stepfather grew up in a kosher home, but was a bachelor all of his life. And so I think the fact that we went kosher was really what he secretly wanted. And so I I think they all were fulfilled. And yes, we, we continued with that. So finally, we broke that last barrier to feeling a sense of belonging with that Jewish community. And it was really wonderful for all of us. And my parents were so on board with the kosher that in 1974, we moved here to L.A. And they decided to open up a kosher restaurant. So in 1977, the Milky Way was born. And the Milky Way is so many things. It was a place where you could get my mother's wonderful fluffy blintzes and her extra crispy, wonderful latkes. But also you could get Mexican food and Chinese food and Italian food, all kosher. When in L.A. there weren't any kosher dining options. There was one restaurant called Nosh and Rye, which we all called Nosh and Die. <laughs> so no competition there. And I I have to say, I'm so, so very proud of what they established. And the Milky Way is wonderful and still going strong today. The menu has evolved. It's even better. You will still find my mother's favorite dishes there. And my mom sadly passed away recently after 40 years of being there every single day. But you walk in that place and you will feel her warmth and her energy, whether it's on the plate in front of you or the wonderful pictures on the wall. And more than anything, when you walk in, you will know that you belong. Thank you. Okay, last question. If your mom came to the Milky Way today, what would she order? My mother would say, first, pour me a big glass of Cabernet. And then she'd yell at me because we have cilantro in the guacamole. And my mother hated cilantro. And then she would order the spiciest thing on the menu. She had to have the, I mean, she used to go to in in the morning and the cooks would make her 
scrambled eggs with jalapenos for breakfast. And my mother ate jalapenos until her last day when she was 97. Um, so she would probably order something with extra jalapenos on it. <laughs> that would be her. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us, telling your story. It really was a true pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I love this. I, I love schmaltzy. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. That was Nancy Spielberg. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week. Until next time, head to jewishfoodsociety.org for delicious recipes and much more. Sorry, you won't find any lobster, though. Schmalti is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get this show so you don't miss any of the stories. Schmalti is produced and edited by Gal Shaya and Particle 3. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. I'm your host, Amanda Dell.